We're starting the show, though, talking more about the dropping of the capacity limits, those restrictions. Yesterday, it was announced that at midnight, those limits will be gone. That means places like nightclubs can go back to full capacity. Dancing will be back as well. So what does this mean for those businesses? Well, Dave Kershaw is joining us now. He is the owner of the Cabana Nightclub. Dave, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. My pleasure, Jill. How are you doing? Uh, very well. How about you? Really good, thanks. Pretty excited that we get to, uh, you know, get back to a bit of normalcy and then uh, business operations uh, this weekend. Really excited. Uh, so how has it been, though, kind of uh, the, the last couple of years and the lead-up to this announcement yesterday? Well, I mean, it's been really tough. It's been the worst couple of years um, for hospitality um, that I've been a part of, and I've owned clubs and bars in Vancouver since 96. So, I mean, getting shut down um, and then being able to operate at some points with limited capacity was tough, but we made it through um, and just excited to offer a great experience again to our guests starting right now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I I know some nightclub owners and some of those businesses were able to shift a bit and offer more of a dine-in situation. Were you able to do that at all or or kind of make up any of the losses that way? Well, yeah, I actually did that. Um, I don't know. I, I, I talked a bit about it. I, we were offering a menu from the pawn shop and from Domino's Pizza for the last kind of, you know, three, four weeks. And I was able to operate at partial capacity by offering food service. And uh, you know what? We were selling 35, 40 large pizzas every weekend for the last month. So we were able to make that work and make some revenue. But obviously, being limited in capacity and six to a table and no mingling and no dancing isn't exactly what you think of when you want to go to a nightclub for that kind of experience. Uh, no, not at all. It seems kind of the opposite of what a lot of people <laughs> yeah. would be picturing. Uh, so were yeah. you ready then to get back up and running and operational again? We're always ready, Jill. We're always <laughs> ready. But yes, we are definitely ready and excited uh, to get going again. Um, yeah. We are ready. Uh, how are staffing levels? Because I know whenever we've talked to the restaurant industry, they too have said we're ready to go full capacity and to get things back to normal. But there certainly have been some issues with staff that have left or getting staff back. You know, um, at the beginning, uh, a couple, you know, sort of 18 months ago when we opened for a brief period during the summer in 2020, it was a bit of a problem, but no problems now. Um, a lot of people are, are looking for work and um, you can come in on some pretty short hours, make some pretty decent extra money. So uh, we actually have a lineup of people looking for work. So no problems there at all. Wow, that's uh, very good to hear that. Yeah. Uh, the one thing from the announcement yesterday, well, not that one thing, but one of the things from the announcement that a lot of people kind of focused on was the return of dancing, which I know a lot of mm-hmm. people will be happy about. But the idea of dancing with a mask on and people questioning how that's going mm-hmm. to work. <laughs> well, um, it's hilarious, for one, um, considering that I can go to the gym and jump on the Stairmaster and crush it for 45 minutes with no mask on um, or train legs, you know, um, which, you know, I go to the gym all the time and we're not having to wear a mask when we work out. So, you know, I know uh, there's some tough decisions that the province and Bonnie Henry have to make, but that one kind of is a little bit of a head scratcher. But, you know, uh, it is what it is. And we're happy to be moving in at least a positive direction for our industry. Uh, I thought of that, too, because uh, I walk by a gym where I always feel a little guilty whenever I'm walking to work. I see everybody working out. But the, sa- the same thing. I see people on the treadmills and the different machines yeah. not wearing masks. Is it is it different, do you think, then, that people are, are closer together, I would imagine, when you're on a dance floor? Well, you could maybe make that argument, but you could also make the argument when you're breathing heavy. And I think we've all now seen these moments, but someone breathes and how far their particulate goes when you're breathing heavy. 
Um, and I would argue that you're probably breathing heavier when you're doing Stairmaster than when you're kind of dancing in a nightclub. Um, you know, we're not full blown break dancing or anything. People are just kind of dancing and hanging out together. Um, I'm not sure what the science would say, but I guess you can make that argument, but it seems kind of, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It's a bit of a head scratcher to me. What's it going to actually look like though? Do you think, because I mean, even on transit to, in places where there are other mask mandates, you can easily see people that are wearing the masks below their noses or not wearing them correctly. I mean, are we going to be looking at a scenario where if people are on a dance floor and even if they have a mask on, if they're not wearing it correctly, I mean, are we expecting security is going to go up to people and tell them, Hey, you got to put that mask on. Yeah, yeah, we we have the DJ announce it too. I mean, it's our responsibility to help enforce the rules to the best of our ability. So we will be doing that, you know, in a polite way. And we found that for the most part, people have been pretty understanding that these aren't our rules, but they're the provincial rules and they're actually law so that they need to comply with them. And in the odd circumstance over the last little while, we've had to remove a couple of people who simply wouldn't comply. But it's been, you know, not too bad and the vast majority of people um if they're you know asked nicely we'll uh we'll 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 do what they need to do right so it sounds like you're pretty excited then to get back to a more normal type of crowd and a more normal type of atmosphere in the club jill we're fired up let's go (laughs) is it still uh, this is going to sound well I, i will fully admit that i'm very naive about this but is it still friday saturday nights are the big nights or when is the the big nights for you guys well, yeah, I mean, Friday and Saturday are always the big nights, in, in, you know, particularly in Vancouver, but we do have a really good Thursday night. We do a Latin night that we're relaunching. Um, and we didn't actually restart the Latin night because dancing, you know, you got to have dancing with a Latin night. I mean, it just doesn't work So if you don't have dancing. So with the dancing, we're able to bring that back starting, uh, well, that's tomorrow. So, yeah, um, we'll be doing Thursday night as well. But so Thursday, Friday, Saturday for us. Do you find that people are also busy booking bigger parties and now that there are uh, the, not the capacity limits for people to have celebrations and such, is that going to be, uh, do you think, making a big comeback? Well, um, what I can tell you is that our email and phone literally blew up starting at about, uh, I don't know, 20 minutes into Bonnie's announcement. So, um, yes, we've had larger groups reach out and I've had more requests for guest lists and table reservations and promoters and DJs reach out to me in the last 24 hours than I have in the last, like, month combined. So, yeah, there people are excited to get back at it. I think people have been anticipating this. We're waiting for it and watching it, and we're all over it. So, yeah, we're, there's, there's a lot more interest. All right. Well, Dave, thanks so much for taking the time to pleasure. chat with us. It's always nice to, to talk about things in a, in a positive light. So thanks so much, and all the, the best for the reopen. All right. Thanks, Jill. Have a good day. Well, as you just heard in the news, Conservative interim leader Candace Bergen saying her caucus will not be supporting the Liberal government invoking the Emergencies Act over those protests. We also heard earlier today from Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet saying his party will sharply oppose the use of the Emergencies Act as well. He went on to say it is unnecessary and a political move to make it appear as though the Prime Minister is doing something constructive. Well, let's bring in Jack Lindsay, a professor at Brandon University, to talk a bit more about this. Jack Lindsay is an associate professor in the Applied Disaster and Emergency Studies Department there and joins us on the line. Thanks so much for being with us. 
Happy to be here, Jill. Has the government proven at this point that there was a threat to national security or that threshold had been met to bring in the Emergencies Act? Well, the phrasing is that the government um, believes to a reasonable degree that there is such a threat. So I, I'm not sure um, how that will be interpreted by the um, politicians or if it ever goes to court. But I think the important piece is that we understand that it's easy for us to think of Canada and the federal government as being the whole country and then the provinces being the puzzle pieces. But this is also a, a sort of a constitutional jurisdiction issue. The federal government cannot interfere in the activities of the provinces, but for the banking aspect of this and the concerns about the crowdsourcing, that's a federal matter and the provinces couldn't do anything about it. So I'm, I'm thinking, because I'm not the prime minister, but I'm thinking that, uh, uh, that their moves as much as anything else is to bring forward these regulations around um, crowdfunding uh, now when they're useful rather than months from now if they went through the normal uh, process to get a, an act amended. Right. Okay. And and that's, I guess, one of the, the key things in this is timing in that, because one of the questions has been, well, couldn't you, if you felt that crowdfunding was funding illegal activities, and certainly there could be questions about that with money laundering and certain and other things. But if you felt that it was uh, crowdfunding for illegal activities specifically tied to this blockade, couldn't you already do something about it? But is the question then it's the timing that they could do something immediately? Yes. And, and, Regardless of your political views, I think you can feel the rock in a hard place of if they'd waited the couple of months it would take to draft regulations, go through consultations and get it through the House to amend the Act, they'd be accused of waiting too long and not acting when it was needed. They act when it's needed and they're accused of jumping the gun and not going through the process. So I, um, I think just uh, procedurally, I think there's so much, there should be some sympathy for getting caught in that, uh, in that space. Is it different, though, or do we look at the two separately as far as the crowdfunding and the financial part of this compared to the specific spots of protest, be it at the Coots border crossing or downtown Ottawa? That does make an interesting point, because all the provinces, like in B.C., um, we have legislation that allows in a state of emergency for the government to require somebody to provide a service that they're competent or, or capable to provide except Ontario's legislation specifically says authorizing but not requiring a person to provide this service. And so there may have been um, some concern that the Ontario legislation wouldn't allow, um, you know, for example, the use of the heavy tow truck drivers to require them to do it. Uh, now bringing in the Emergencies Act, it gives that federal power to do what almost all the other provinces could have done um, themselves. And that may also be why we're only seeing the focus on um, Ontario. And, and it comes down to, to, I would imagine as well, or certainly something that we've heard throughout this is the resources and some police forces saying we don't have the resources we need uh, to go in there to clear these protests, to clear these occupations, although it does seem like that's happening now. But is that happening now because of the Emergencies Act or is that happening now because something like this isn't going to be allowed to go on indefinitely anyway? Well, you know, there's, there's a number of pieces um, moving at the same time. Uh, Omicron is, has been decreasing across the country and the provincial public health measures are being withdrawn, which probably would have been happening about now anyway. Um, but I think some of the protesters are feeling that they won and are happy to go home now that they've succeeded. Um, plus, there is this question of 
how long the government needed to take, the federal government needed to take to um, be able to demonstrate that there was a concern around the crowdfunding or, or how the protests were getting their money. And that's also where it crosses into the security of Canada aspect. If, if money was coming in from um, outside of the country, then there was a concern there about foreign influence. Right. So it does sound like the two things. And again, I know we saw uh, there was another attempt to shut down the Ambassador Bridge. It sounds like that was thwarted quickly. Law enforcement moved in and didn't allow a repeat of that. So it sounds like things that are happening on the ground are much different than, say, what powers are needed to deal with things that are happening online. Yes. And again, I think reflects that most of our um, policing is is uh, provincial right uh, you have a provincial authority even in um, places in vancouver where you see rcmp cars they're working on contract for the municipality right they're not um, working as federal rcmp but as local rcmp if you will uh, so it again it may just be that the combination of uh, reducing the public health measures the threat of the emergencies act and what it might bring and just the conversations that were happening, I know in Emerson, they were saying that the, the RSMP were able to just negotiate out a um, peaceful end to the Emerson blockade. So it, it could be a number of things happening all at the same time. It's hard to know what was the, the effective part of that. Um, do you think, though, I mean, this can't be, well, I mean, we know this isn't the first time that there have been financial interests, that there have been financial donations or supports to causes that are taking place on Canadian soil, whether it's opposed to a pipeline or or other protests. So why would this be the first time that the federal government would, would have to take that unprecedented measure of bringing in the Emergencies Act to crack down on that? That's a question I don't really have a, an insider answer for. Uh, but we look back to what happened after 2001 and the terrorist attacks in the U.S. One of the things that the U.S. and Canada and other countries cracked down on were the informal money transfers, where a lot of migrants to Canada, um, recent citizens to Canada, would transfer money home to um, countries in Africa or Asia. That was stopped, and it was a, a significant blow to a lot of those um, families in other countries where they relied on that money to come through informal channels. Um, there was a fear those channels would be used to support terrorism, and so we, we regulated that. So in, in a similar way, I'm not trying to compare this to 9-11 in terms of the terrorism aspect, but as different financial um, methods come and go, uh, the government has to try to keep up with it. And this may just be a case where they were caught a little bit flat-footed, um, in terms of not seeing this potential earlier, uh, but now they wanted to act on it. How important is it, do you think, that they stay to their word that this is only going to be used in specific geographic locations? Uh, we know, as you mentioned, too, uh, being used in the crowdfunding, the financial part of this. How important is it that the federal government stick to that and and remove it as soon as possible? Well, the act, um, for public welfare and now these and the public order emergencies require the federal government to work in concert with and not to um, inhibit or to block um, activities happening provincially. So it's interesting that um, Premier Kenny in Alberta and our Premier here in Manitoba uh, were vocally opposed to this, but um, Premier Ford, who's not always been a friend of the Prime Minister's, um, was in favour of it. And it, it may have to do with um, the provincial legislation and what tools 
Ford had compared to what tools other premiers may have had. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there for today. But Jack Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this and kind of walking us through the act. I appreciate your time today. Happy to join you. All right. We started the show talking to the owner of the Cabana Nightclub about their excitement in reopening with the capacity limits lifted. Dancing is back, albeit with masks on. Some concerns, some questions about how that's going to work. But let's talk a little bit more about some other festivities and gatherings and things that have not been happening during these restrictions. And Paige Petru joins us now, founder and CEO of Spotlight Events. Paige, thanks so much for being available and chatting with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, just to get a bit of background, what kind of events would you normally be doing if, uh, if there wasn't a pandemic with all of these rules in place? Yeah, so our company does a range of events. We do a lot of weddings and personal celebrations. Um, and we also do corporate events, corporate social style events. We do a lot of charity galas and not-for-profit events, awards banquets, uh, conferences, community festivals and gatherings. So we we do quite a bit. So what's it been like for you for the past couple of years? It has been extremely challenging, to say the least. Um, as an industry, we were, you know, I don't think I have to say extremely hard hit, probably one of the most hard hit industries um, throughout the pandemic. So it has been a lot of um, pivoting and adapting and last minute changes, um, being creative, finding creative solutions and kind of riding the waves um, and, and relying a lot on industry professionals to interpret health orders and kind of banding together to weather this storm together. So it's been a very interesting time, a lot of learning, a lot of challenges, and we're very happy to be where we are today compared to a month ago. <laughs> I know uh, we heard from you before, and I know you talked with our colleagues at Global uh, a while ago, uh, saying that you kind of felt left out as as an industry and in that there hadn't been any specific, uh, specific mention, I guess, or it didn't seem like you were getting a lot of attention or people were acknowledging just how much your industry was being impacted. So with the lifting of the restrictions, with the capacity limits and things back on uh, when and that was announced yesterday. What does that mean for your industry? Um, it, it's huge for us. We put in as, as a group, as an industry, we formed an association over the last few weeks, actually. Um, and we've put in a lot of work to, to fight to have our voices be heard because of that challenge that we were faced um, really being overlooked. We're a very unique industry. And if you're not um, actively doing events regularly, we do tend to get forgotten. Um, so we, like I said, we put in a lot of hard work um, to be heard. So to have um, the announcement yesterday was really, really gratifying um, and just really validating to us as an industry and as professionals that we were heard, we were um, considered. And I think that it really um, gives us more confidence moving ahead. And, you know, the pandemic I know isn't over. Dr. Bonnie Henry is clear about that. But we're just really hopeful that now we have more of a foundation to collaborate with the government and with the health office. So as, you know, concerns about transmission may come up in the future with future waves, we can, you know, work alongside them in consultation to address whatever um risks they might be concerned about in the environment of events and adjust our operating protocols to put their 
you know, worries at ease and be able to continue operating as an industry as um, as we ride out the rest of the pandemic. Are people or have people been waiting and are ready now to kind of pull the cord and get going and get these celebrations happening? Or, or what do you anticipate is going to be happening then in, say, the next few weeks? Yeah, it's definitely going to be an interesting time. I find we call them, especially for weddings, we call them COVID couples, the people that have had to have their wedding plans impacted by the last two years by the pandemic. And it's kind of in a weird way been a little bit of luck of the draw. It just happened to, you know, depend on you know what date you had booked. You had, you know, booked with a venue and all of your vendors. Um, you know, people, when they're planning a large event like this, they're not just you know, picking dates out of a hat. It's, they've got a lot of money down on um, deposits and that sort of thing. So as we rode through the different shutdowns and waves, you know, some people lucked out and they happened to have their big events scheduled for a time when things were relatively open and other people didn't luck out and, you know, had the entire industry shut down a week before their big event and had to scramble. So there's kind of this, um, we're in this interesting place where in the immediate future, there's some events that have already postponed as a result of this prior shutdown. Um, but having said that, I think as an industry, we're going to be extremely busy. People are ready to gather and ready to celebrate. Um, we, you know, a lot of events that are going to be on the books for professionals are, are for 2022 are going to be events that were booked um, even as early as 2018, 2019 and had to be postponed throughout the last two years. So we're starting to work through some of those clients and those contracts, um, and then obviously taking on new business as it comes and uh, kind of getting, getting back to square one where we can start some recovery. And is it weddings, do you think, are the most pent up, people are ready to get back, or are there other events too that, that would kind of be, I guess, at the front of the line? I think it's everything, to be honest. I think that people have really, you know, not only as an industry, as professionals, we've had to weather through this. People have um, been really impacted, mental health and just, um, you know, as communities being not gathering in the way we used to. I think it, we almost forget how, how easy it used to be to go to a community event or go to uh you know, have a corporate event or a networking event, thinking about, you know, chambers of commerce, boards of trade and associations and those sorts of things. I think that people are just really ready to get back to a level of normalcy, have that human social connection, start to restore some mental health. Um, so I think it's going to be everything. I think people are just really ready to get back, get back on with life. And do you see any issues with as far as the mask mandate staying in place and the vaccine certificate and as far as how people are going to be reacting to those staying in place, at least until they're reassessed in mid-March and potentially staying around longer than that in B.C.? I mean, I think that everyone has their personal opinions on that. Us as an industry as a whole, um, we've just struggled so hard to be open especially over the last two months, that we will take any challenges we have to. We'll work with any restrictions, whether it's masks, uh, checking vaccine passports. No one's, our clients aren't concerned about it. Our, you know, fellow professionals in the industry are not concerned about it. Um, in terms of enforcement, it, it's a relatively easy thing when people are just grateful to have the opportunity to actually gather and have a wedding and be in the room. Um, and when you're surrounded by you know, people you know, uh, everyone's you know much more likely to be respectful of the rules and and when you're dealing with a controlled environment of an event it's 
a lot easier to um, to control the environment as opposed to a public setting. You know, you can turn off the music if you need to. You can get on the microphone, make announcements, have the MC address the room if you need to. So there's a lot of orchestration and power, so to speak, that you have when you're running an event. Um, so, so there's really not a lot of concerns. Like I said, we're just really grateful to be able to get back to work um, and happy to work with whatever restrictions need to be in place for public health and, um, and, and yeah, to get, it, to get back to it. All right. Uh, any issues with supply chain or employees? It seems like there's always something else and now the restrictions are lifted, but uh, did, have you had any problems or, or issues with getting things that are needed, whether it's supplies for the big events? Uh, yeah, that's definitely going to be a challenge for a lot of a lot of the bigger companies, especially catering companies, especially um, who've laid off tons and tons of staff. And, you know, a lot of them normally have rosters of probably 100 employees. And right now they're operating at five. So um, in order to be able to ramp up operations to get inventory, um, there's definitely challenges with the supply chains, challenges with hiring and training staff. Um, so even though, you know, the the restrictions are eased that doesn't necessarily mean you know we turn on the switch and we're on our on our road to recovery there's going to be some challenges and another thing going back to those uh contracts that were booked in 2018-2019 those are you know contractually obligated under 2018-2019 pricing mm-hmm. so with cost increases um, profit margins are going to be a lot tighter for businesses so it's not necessarily going to be the most financially fruitful uh year but at least it is starting to lay a foundation and starting to dig out of, um, you know, the the hole that we've all been in uh, from the last two years. Uh, interesting. I hadn't thought of that uh, with the pricing and those contracts. Will that also mean, though, as far as wait times to kind of clear that backlog? Is there going to be a longer wait, do you think, for people that might just start planning now? Absolutely. Yeah, that's going to be a big challenge. I, I think that um, you know, for sure, 2022, uh, you know, the key dates, of course, if you're planning more of a corporate event or it's a weekday, you're not going to have quite as much of a challenge. But if you're looking at a Saturday in the summer, I mean, there's only, what, 12 Saturdays, June, July, August. So it's definitely um, things are going to be very much booked up. I'd be very surprised to even um, get a date in 2022 and even 2023 is really starting to book up. So there is going to be a bit of a backlog and I hope, I'm sure it will even out um, as we move forward. But yeah, there's definitely going to be high demand in, in the world of events for the next two, maybe three years. All right. Well, Paige, thanks so much for joining us and talking more about this today. Appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you may have heard about this battle brewing and it started, well, it started before this, but really came to a head just a few days before the Super Bowl. Not a huge surprise that Super Bowl Sunday was a big day for guacamole. And that being said, it was a big day for the purchasing of avocados. But the U.S. government announced that there is a ban in place until further notice on the importing of avocados from Mexico after 
year, a U.S. plant safety inspector was apparently threatened in Mexico. So they announced that ban just before Super Bowl Sunday. And there's been some pushback. Mexico's avocado producers using some clever ads uh, trying to get the ban lifted. But they are continuing apparently to suffer extortion from organized crime. And they're also continuing to chop down areas where conservationists are raising some concerns. This means that a lot of avocados are not getting into the U.S. market, but what does it mean for the Canadian market as well? Joining me to talk about that is Sylvain Charlebois, the Senior Director with the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and also Professor at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. This is a bit of a different one. We normally are talking to you about food prices and inflation, which is also an issue today, but we really wanted to focus on what's happening with avocados and this bizarre story out of the U.S., the United States saying they're temporarily banning avocados from Mexico. This could go on indefinitely. What's happening here? Uh, Yeah, well, uh, I I think a lot of people uh, who enjoy avocados uh, have uh, have no idea where these avocados are coming from, how they're made. The industry itself has not matured well because <laughs> demand has grown uh, across the world, especially in North America. But the uh, industry itself is uh, is impacted by uh, crime, uh, cartels, and things like that. So it, it does get rough once in a while. And, um, and the, USDA, the USDA was subject to some uh, threats. Uh, at least a few people working for the SDA were subject to some threats, and as a result of all that, they decided to issue an embargo on Mexican uh, avocados days before the Super Bowl, uh, which was last weekend. And uh, I'm not sure if uh, it is going to end anytime soon, but my uh, the concern here is that the vast majority of avocados consumed in, in, uh, in the United States do come from Mexico. So uh, now, uh, the United States does grow avocados, but uh, it, it, it's not enough to actually supply the entire market. Yeah, the timing was interesting, wasn't it? Right before Super Bowl, which I think <laughs> they said was the biggest day for avocado when you talk about guacamole and avocados being consumed. So this was because of threats against U.S. agriculture inspectors. But if the U.S. gets so many of their avocados from Mexico, surely Canada must get a lot of avocado from there as well. Absolutely. And so and, and uh, so today we're talking about food inflation, but this could actually uh, play out well for Canadians because uh, Mexican producers will, will want to, to will look for new markets. <laughs> and the U.S. is a huge market, so I'm actually expecting avocado prices in Canada to drop as a result of that because at some point, well, if there's an oversupply of certain products, uh, that actually could advantage uh, consumers uh, in places where avocados would be available, and Canada would be one place. Uh, interesting. We don't often see a, a benefit, I suppose, from uh, what's uh, a bit of a boycott <laughs> in the United States. Let's, let's take it. Let's actually eat avocados and save money. Yeah, I, I mean, and avocados seem to be one of the most uh, more volatile when it comes to prices. Sometimes you'll go into a grocery store and they're a dollar, dollar ninety nine. They can go up to two ninety nine. They do. They can. They can be quite expensive. 
Seasonality is a big factor for avocados right now because you have a few producers like Peru, Mexico, uh, and uh, the United States, of course. Uh, they do produce avocados, and uh, they, they haven't really figured things out. Uh, like I said, unlike what we're seeing with, uh, with coffee, with vanilla, with bananas, uh, the avocado industry hasn't really aged all that well and has allowed uh, criminality to, to play a significant role. So it, things aren't stable uh, right now, and that's why prices fluctuate quite a bit. When you think about bananas, I mean, bananas uh, are, are grown around the equator, and historically it was impacted by crime, but today it's a very stable commodity, and look at prices. Uh, a banana is basically priced the same as uh, as 20 years ago. And so I'm not sure if avocados will actually uh, suffer the same fate or will see the same fate. But uh, from a consumer perspective, what's going on right now is not practical. And I saw a number, too, that, and I, I will fully admit I didn't realize there was an Avocado Institute of Mexico, but I guess it makes sense that there would be. But according <laughs> to the Institute, that over the past few decades, apparently the domestic production of avocado in Mexico has dropped more than 45%, which seems like a really big drop. It has, and as soon as demand for a product drops, then, of course, it tightened things up, and uh, and groups will tend to be a little bit more uh, demanding, I guess. But uh, you've seen other players, like Peru, for example, uh, they, they are growing more. There's more competition, essentially. Mexico really dominated the market for a very long time. But because of, of, uh, of crimes and things like that, uh, they have allowed other countries to produce more avocados, and, and, and that's kind of what's going on right now. So over time, perhaps we could see a, a more stable industry. But for now, I mean, the USDA has decided to make things interesting. So do you see a scenario then where the price of avocados is going to go up in the United States but down here in Canada? Uh, I can tell you avocado prices will go up in the United States. I'm actually talking to you from Florida, where avocados are produced, and I can tell you that prices have actually increased uh, since last week because there's not, um, there's not a whole lot of avocados uh, uh, in, in the United States. Only two states will produce avocados, California and, and Florida. And uh, you're, you're already seeing prices uh, tighten up uh, in the United States as a result of what's going on in Mexico. Hmm, interesting. And then you mentioned this too. So is it a case of we really do need to see the diversification or if other countries can grow avocado uh, to get those countries to step in and start becoming bigger producers? That, that is a possibility. When these things occur, it does actually allow other countries to step in and uh, take advantage of a situation. Uh, we've seen that in the past uh, in, uh, in beef, for example, with coffee as well, uh, kiwis, uh, I mean, every now and then you see an event uh, happen impacting one country, and that will favor other countries. So I, I, don't, I don't think this is going to be an exception. And do you think there's any chance then, if this was a boycott, if this was because of a threat to an agriculture inspector from the U.S., is there any concern that Canada would also see those threats or see the criminal activity and also join in the boycott or also pull back on avocado imports? 
Uh, unless it gets political, I mean, it's very rare that you see an embargo uh, as a result of, of threats. Typically, uh, it's always related to uh, food safety. Uh, my my I, I, my guess is that something is going on beyond avocados here. I mean, so the avocado story is real. I think there are problems in Mexico uh, with avocado production. But there's probably other things going on. It's similar to what happened to our potatoes, PI potatoes here in Canada. Uh, there was an embargo on PI potatoes for a few months in Canada. Uh, but when you look at uh, the grand scheme of things, it's not just about PI potatoes. There were other things at play. Uh, trades can be multifaceted, and uh, you can't really look at one product in isolation. Uh, countries tend to to go back and forth with uh, with these things. And, but what, what's unusual in this case is that it's, it has nothing to do with food safety. They were forthcoming about crime and threats, which makes this case a little bit unique. Hmm, yeah, it does seem like, given the timing and what we're dealing with, uh, that there's a lot more going on yep. there, for sure. Uh, Sylvain, we'll leave it there. As always, so great to chat with you. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Bye-bye.